That's how you do church, amen? amen? Hey, what's up, what's up, what's up? Good morning. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see you guys. Thank you. Wow. So, um, I, wow, Travis, dude, it's so good to see you. Oh, my gosh. I realize some of you are looking at me right now, and you're like, who is this jabroni? And that's a weird feeling, because if you don't know me, hi, my name is Cole Dykey. I actually used to be a part of Redeemer Church in Cedar Falls um, some five and a half, some six years ago. And uh, so it's probably weird to have somebody who you don't really know say, I love your church, but uh, let me say that for you. I, I love this church. I love your church. I love Jesus's church, and I love Redeemer Church. Like I said, my name is Cole Dykey. Um, I'm just like profoundly grateful for this local church. You really have no idea. Um, no other church gave me a chance. Like, I, I can't explain to you how valuable and how important it was for me to have a local church that six, seven years ago looked into my life and said, Cole, we think we see the capacity and calling to be a church planter in your life. Like, it's amazing what that produced in my life. And so I have so much thankfulness and gratitude that if I shared all my thankfulness and gratitude, I just wouldn't have time for a sermon. And so you just got to trust me when I say thank you. And uh, I love you guys. I just love you guys to the moon and back. I love you guys to death. We pray for you guys all the time over in Des Moines. It's been a wild ride for five and a half years. We planted Frontier in Des Moines. Um, the Lord, for whatever reason, sought fit to grow us and sustain us. A couple years ago, we planted our first church out of Frontier in Clinton, Iowa. And uh, right now, yeah, I know, right? Isn't that exciting? Yes. So you guys, that makes you a grand grandparent, right? Wow. You guys feel old? <laughs> and we're actually in the process right now of developing our second church planter that we're going to plant in Ankeny, Iowa. Yeah, praise God. And uh, in no small measure is that the result of your guys' faithfulness and your guys' willingness to plant churches that plant churches. So thank you. Uh, Romans 12, right? That was a lot. Nice work, bro. Don't freak out. I'm not preaching the whole chapter. I wanted you to see the whole chapter because we're going to zero in on the last three or four verses. We'll get there in a second. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll get after it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray for a special outpouring of your Holy Spirit this morning on us. We need a special anointing from you. A special anointing so that we might leave this mall this morning different people than who walked in here this morning. We're not here to keep up the status quo, Lord. We're not here to remain unchanged. And we are not here to do anything besides be present with your risen and exalted son. And so my prayer is that right now you give us a greater awareness, a heightened sensitivity to the reality that Jesus is among us in this room right now. Wherever the word of God is opened and preached, there Christ is faithfully walking from one side of the room to the other, building us up, encouraging us. And so, Lord, would, would you give us a word from your son, Jesus Christ, this morning? For those who need comfort, my prayer is that they would feel Jesus' hand on their shoulder right now. For those who need a word from you, my prayer is that they would hear Jesus whisper in their ear this morning. For those who, quite frankly, just need to wake up, my prayer is that they would hear Jesus joyfully shout over them this morning. But my only hope in standing behind the word of God and expositing and preaching it is my hope that Jesus Christ goes forth from it, faithfully ministering, removing the foolish things that I say and instead choosing to speak the things that he wants to say. 
So, Lord, any foolish thing I say, may that go in one ear and out the other, but any faithful, Christ-exalting, Christ-glorifying, Christ-championing word that has the capacity to transform lives, my prayer is that you would be there with your hammer and you would hammer that nail one inch deeper into our hearts. Would you do that, Lord? Would you change us? If only one person this morning as a result of your word being preached, if only one person experienced greater joy in Jesus, then all of the work and all of the energy that went into this sermon and this drive would totally be worth it. So Lord, would you do that this morning? It's in the precious name of Jesus that all of God's people said, amen. amen. Um, I'm in love. Two, two years ago, over two years ago, I, uh, I had my first baby daughter born to me. Her name is Della, and I am absolutely taken by her. I am wrapped around her tiny little finger. I'm just enthralled with this little lady. She's like 25 pounds, right? As you can tell, like she's not getting a lot, getting a lot of size from the dyke genetics. She's like 25.2 pounds, 24 pounds of smiles, 24 pounds of like bright blue baby eyes, and like 1.2 pounds of bone and muscle and, and fat and everything like that. And so I'm just in love with her. One of the things I love about my daughter, Della, is that she literally might be the only person I know in the world who's, uh, who's more competitive than me. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. In fact, uh, the other day, uh, she stepped on her scale upstairs, and she waited, and the scale went, you know, and it said, uh, you know, 25 pounds, 25.2 pounds. She steps on the scale, she looks at her weight, and she looks up at me and says, yep, Dad, it says I'm taller than you. <laughs> I was, I was like, that's not how it works, babe. But I appreciate the competitiveness. And so I'm just absolutely in love with this girl. But she's about to break my heart because next month she turns three and I am so not ready for that. I'm just not ready for my baby girl to be three. My older son, absolutely. Like, I don't know what it is about having a baby boy. I'm like, yeah, you're ready for college. Go, man. I want to see you mature and grow. But my girl, I'm just not ready for her to turn three. And so... The other day we were talking about it outside uh, on the front steps and, and just she said the cutest thing in the middle of the conversation. I was like, I'm going to write that down. In the middle of the conversation, she said, uh, Dad, when I turn three, I'm going to be so big. <laughs> and I was like, is that right? And she said, yeah, when I turn three, I'm going to be bigger than Daddy. And I was like, easy Gentile. That's not, <laughs> I was like, I was like, sweetheart, because I love you, I've got to tell you some things. Um, the first thing I got to tell you is that you're a dykey, and there's a lot of things that are great about being a dykey. For instance, your level of enthusiasm is probably going to be higher than everybody else's, okay? When you find yourself in a social situation, your eyes are probably going to sparkle, okay? You're going to love language, grammar, usage, mechanics. You're, there's a lot of sweet stuff that is a part of being the dykies, but sweetheart, don't get your hopes about getting, getting big, okay? It's just not going to happen. Like, look at daddy. Five, six, five, seven on a good day. You know, like these are your genetics. Just get used to being the smallest person in the room. And I can say this, sweetheart, because I'm reformed in my theology. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, honey, that you were predestined to be short. <laughs> Before the foundations of the earth, you were set apart to be a pipsqueak, okay? It's just not going to happen to you. Um, but even, you know, beyond that, that's just not the way it works. It's just not the way growth works. Like Della's got this idea that growth happens when you cross these artificial barriers in life. You know, like she thinks that when she crosses the threshold from two to three, she's just automatically going to get bigger. She thinks that life is like growth is kind of like a video game character. She, you know, she gets to the next level and just like just ends up leveling up and growing like that. And uh, I had to explain to her, sweetheart, that's not the way it works. Like growth happens. Sure, there are some times and seasons where you grow faster than others. Absolutely. But for the most part, honey, growth happens one day at a time. And specifically, growth happens one meal at a time. Growth happens one meal at a time. And, 
And you can, you can laugh at my sweetheart. You can laugh at my two-year-old daughter for thinking that once she turns three, she's automatically going to turn big. But Christians have the same superficial view of growth sometimes that my daughter has. You got this idea in your head that growth happens when you pass artificial barriers in life. You've got these things in your life that you're clinging on to, and you wrongheadedly believe that once you turn blank, then you'll finally be more Christ-like, you know? If you're 20, you have the tendency to think, you know, when I turn 30, then I'm just going to be way more Christ-like than I am now. If you're single, you have the view, you tell yourself, you know, someday when I find myself a hubby, like a man of God, someday when I find myself a spouse, then I'll finally be way more godly. Or, or one day when I'm less busy and finally have time to like follow Jesus and read my Bible, then I'll be like way more Christ-like. Or how about this one? One day when church life is way easier at Redeemer Church and all these nine months smooth over, one day when church gets easier, then I'll finally be able to be more Christ-like. And you're wrong. Growth happens one day at a time. Specifically, growth happens. I don't know if you caught this in Romans 12, but growth happens one meal at a time. So that's my offer to you this morning. My offer to you is that Jesus is inviting you to be transformed, to grow, to level up, to become more like Jesus, but it happens one meal at a time. And the book of Romans is just absolutely perfect for this. So I realize you guys aren't in the book of Romans, so let me catch you up. Let's do a little bit of an overview of the book of Romans, and then we'll jump into Romans 12, particularly the last three verses. But if you don't know, the book of Romans was written by a bro named Paul. And if you know anything about Paul, Paul was like a rising superstar in Judaism some 2,000 years ago. He was studying underneath the best Jewish leaders. He was born on the right day, circumcised on the right day. He was a great teacher. It looked like he was going to be famous in Judaism. And then Jesus literally kicked him off his horse and saved him when he was traveling. And ever since Jesus saved Paul, Paul gave up everything to go travel like all over the world, just breathlessly planting churches that plant churches and plant churches. And so while Paul was giving everything up and just running all over the ancient world, planting churches in Jerusalem, planting churches in Corinth, planting churches in Rome, he noticed that it was his calling to plant multicultural churches. And one of the reasons, yo, why Paul felt called and compelled to plant multicultural churches was not not because it was the hip thing to do 2,000 years ago. Believe me when I tell you, multicultural churches were not hip 2,000 years ago. You worshiped your daddy's gods, and if you didn't, you were a traitor. And so to see all these different cultures coming together underneath the banner of Jesus in local churches was an amazing thing for Paul. Paul did this because like, he loved his Bible. And so Paul knew when he met the risen Jesus that the purpose of Israel was to bring in all the nations, all the nations underneath the lordship of Yahweh expressed explicitly through Jesus. And so all of a sudden, these, these little churches in the ancient world are popping up everywhere and like they're hot messes. They're hot messes because there's Jewish people, there's Gentile, there's slaves, there's slave owners, there's men, there's women, there's people high up. And these things are an absolute mess, which it sounds really good on paper. Like, oh, these are some sweet multicultural churches. I don't know if you know this, but multicultural churches in real life are hard work. Because it turns out that Jewish people, even ones who love Jesus, have a thousand things that they don't like about Gentiles. And Gentiles, even those ones saved by Jesus, have a thousand things that they don't like about Jewish people. They have different cultures. They have different diets. They dress differently. They behave differently in the public square. And so they're getting together and it's not going well, which means that the first 11 chapters of Romans leading all the way up to Romans 12 is one message on repeat, all the way turned up on full blast, gospel gospel, gospel, because the gospel is the only message that unifies people who look differently. Amen? And so 11 straight chapters of you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus 
apart from any works that you could possibly do. It's the gospel, yo. And when you believe in the gospel, you do not merely become justified in the sight of God. You get all the promises of God. And so in Christ, you are justified. In Christ, you have the spirit of the living God dwelling in you. In Christ, you will inherit the new creation. In Christ, you will be conformed to the image of Jesus because God does all things for the good of those who loves him. And so in Christ, you will be more than conquerors for the new kingdom on the earth. That's the first 11 chapters of Romans. Just gospel. I was, I was at Zombie Burger the other day in Des Moines. Did I say I was from Des Moines? I did. I did. So I was at Zombie Burger, and I got just this sinful burger. It was, it was a mess. If you had seen this burger, you'd be like, dude, get out of the pulpit. You're not qualified. It, <laughs> it, was, it was this burger. It was a mac and cheese burger. Has anybody heard of this thing? Okay, okay, you have, okay. So it's like this big, okay? And the way that they make it is with a bun, eh, wrong. So they throw the bun out. They take two mac and cheese scoops and they deep fat fry them so that they're mac and cheese patties. They throw that on the top and they throw that on the bottom and say, who needs a bun? Get that out of here. And as though that weren't good enough, they take a scoop of mac and cheese and they throw it on the burger. And so it's just like deep fat fried mac and cheese on top, deep fat fried mac and cheese on the bottom, scoop of mac and cheese on the middle. That's what the first 11 chapters of Romans feels like. It's like, it's like deep fat fried gospel at the top, deep fat fried gospel at the bottom, and then a scoop of gospel in the middle of it. Just gospel, gospel, gospel. And then in chapter 12, Paul shifts gears. And he moves on to a different question. And that question is, in light of the gospel, how do we be a church? We're filled with different cultures. We're filled with different opinions. We're filled with all these disagreements, these factions. So how, how do we be a church? Because I don't know if you know this, but if you take a hundred fire ants and a hundred black ants and you put them in a mason jar, nothing happens. They live peaceably with each other. But if you shake the mason jar, do you know what happens? The ants begin attacking one another. Particularly, the fire ants begin attacking the black ants. And the black ants begin attacking the fire ants. And the reason why they do that is really simple. It's because they can't see outside of the mason jar. They only see what's right in front of them which are different looking ants. And so they see one another as the enemy and they begin attacking one another, biting one another and devouring one another. And that's what's happening in the churches in Rome. These different looking ants in, in, in little mason jars together being shaken up and they're turning and biting one another. And maybe there's the potential for that happening in Redeemer Church. And so as we look at Romans chapter 12, there's a heavy question that I believe the Lord wants to press on your heart. What about you? When the mason jar gets shaken, when conflict comes knocking at your door, when your church begins to be filled with people who you think might be your enemy, how will you respond? Will you lash out at other people? Or will you love? Will you bite and devour? Or will you look outside the mason jar? Romans 12. If you've got that, get that open right now. John read the whole chapter. I just want to draw your attention to verses 17 through 21. I mean, you saw the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Don't think highly of yourself. Don't be proud. Instead, love one another. And so Paul ends this chapter by saying this. Repay no one evil for evil, but do 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And so, Redeemer, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's take these verses one verse at a time and see what's present in these verses for us. Overview of these three or four verses is pretty simple. Um, Big picture of this text. What Paul is saying is that the church needs to strive to be a community of peacemaking. You see that come through the text, right? And particularly, in order to be a community that strives for peacemaking, Paul lays out a really pretty simple plan for how to live peaceably with others inside the church and others outside the church who you may or may not see as your enemy. It's a two-part plan, and it's very simple but deceptively difficult. Number one, do not retaliate. Number two, feed them. That's, that's, that's like what I got for you this morning. That's Paul's strategy for living at peace with one another. But I do want you to let this sink in. God's demand for your life, God's demand for this church, is that you labor to live at peace with everybody. Now that's a big call, Right? That's a big call, so let me drop a little bit of a clarity bomb for us. When the Bible talks about living at peace with one another, that doesn't mean 100% agreement. That doesn't mean 100% conformity. That doesn't mean forfeiting your convictions and your opinions and never having difficult conversations. That's called uniformity. That's the way that Fairway does their outfits, right? That's That's not the way that churches do unity. Paul's not advocating for 100% sameness with one another. That's uniformity, which is not the same as unity. Unity is the biblical outcome of striving for peace. Biblically, striving for peace means striving to live in relational harmony, even with those who have differing convictions and opinions than you. So in that sense, God's demand for this church and God's demand for your life is that you strive to live at peace with everybody. And by the way, don't hear what I didn't say. I actually didn't say, and this is a really common mistake, I actually didn't say that God's plan for your life is that you live at peace with everybody because that's not what Paul says. What I said and what Paul says is that it's God's demand for your life that you labor to live at peace with everybody. And this is important because Paul qualifies his statement to live at peace with everybody with two different clauses in verse 18. First, he prefaces that by saying, if possible. What's that mean? Well, in the original Greek, it means if possible. Because that's how they translated it. And so what Paul is saying is he's acknowledging that there's going to be times where it's not possible. Why is that the case? Well, because look at the second way that Paul qualifies this statement. He says, if possible... So far as it depends on you, if you're a note taker, I'd sign that. Sign it if you want. All of you guys are millennials. Ain't nobody telling you what to do. I, I, I would circle it. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with others. And what Paul's doing is he's acknowledging that there are going to be times that living at peace with other people is impossible. And why is that? Because some people don't want peace. They don't want peace. They want drama. Because there's people in the world who love conflict and drama because they don't get their sense of worth and value from being beloved by God. And since they don't get their sense and worth from being beloved by God, peace ends up not feeling peaceful to them. It feels boring. And so instead of desiring peace, they desire drama. 
And at any point in time, if people like this sense a difference between you and them, if they sense conflict between you and them, they do not see that conflict or difference of opinion as a chasm to cross for the sake of Jesus' reputation. They see it as a prop for drama. They see the difference as a prop for drama that perhaps will draw more attention to them. They see it as a way to get more likes, more shares, more retweets, and to place themselves at the top of other people's news feeds, and they will gladly destroy you, your church, your family, for the sake of getting at the top of the algorithm. People love drama. That's true in the churches in Rome. And that's true in 21st century America. These people are toxic. And Paul, of course, ends the book of Romans warning you about them. This is Romans 16. He says, quote, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons don't serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They have an appetite for drama. They get excited about conflict. And with people like this, you can't live in peace with them. And that's okay. Like, that's okay. Jesus didn't live at peace with the drama queens of his day. He didn't didn't live at peace with the Pharisees. They didn't want peace. They wanted arguments and attention from the public square. So Jesus didn't live at peace with them. And so there's going to be points in time where you just can't live at peace with people because they're toxic. And with toxic people, peace is simply outside of your control. And you need to know that because that's super freeing. But you also need to know that in most relationships, there are things that we can control. And in these relationships where there are things that we can control, we, as followers of Jesus with the Holy Spirit, need to focus on those things. Particularly like verse 19 in chapter 12 of Romans. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So no, you, you can't control what your enemies think, say, or do. You can't control the lives of other people. But do you know what you can control? How you respond to people. And that's really freeing. Because I... <laughs> I think the way we get it wrong is we usually flip that. We try to control other people without ever trying to control how we respond. And that's an absolute nightmare. That leads to manipulation, deception, and just a host of evil. Flip that. Don't try to control other people. Don't try to control what they do to you, what they think about you. It's a futile effort. But you can control how you respond to them. And that's extraordinarily freeing because then you can respond strategically to the way that people treat you. Because how, how, how does Paul say we're supposed to respond? Well, look at verse 20. In verse 20, after saying, after saying don't, don't return evil with evil, Paul says, to the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Not a metaphor. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So the appropriate response, rather than retaliating, is you're supposed to feed your enemies. And the beautiful thing about this strategy for peace is that you do have control over whether or not you do this because you have the Holy Spirit. And so, no, you don't have control over other people's lives and their decisions. No, you can't control what your enemies do think or say about you. But you want to know what you have control over? You have control over whether or not those steaks stay in the freezer or go on the grill. You have control whether or not the dishes stay in the cabinet or whether you put them on the table. You have control whether or not your dinner table stays empty or if you pull up a chair for your enemy. You have control over whether or not you move towards your enemies in love. Notice that, by the way, in Paul's strategy. For Paul, um, striving for peace isn't just like having nice thoughts towards other people. You know, like... For Paul, striving for peace always involves moving towards and directly interacting with the person who wronged you. If your enemy is hungry, 
Feed him. If he's thirsty, what should you do when somebody in the church wounds you? If your enemy's hungry, feed him. What, what should you do if you bump into an opinion that you disagree with on somebody's social media feed in this church? If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And this is beautiful because when you obey this, what ends up happening? Well, the text tells you what ends up happening. You win people over to the kingdom, which is what Paul's expression in verse 20 is about. He says, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, when, when, Paul, <laughs> when Paul says this, Paul is not telling you, he's not demanding that you love people malevolently. Some people are like, yes, I get to keep my dark motives and like feed people like, Ugh. You know, like, just love people malevolently. Paul's, Paul's not advocating that you feed people in a way that wounds them. That's not Christianity. That's food poisoning. Okay? <laughs> Paul's not telling you to food poison people. What is going on? Here's what's going on. In Paul's day and age, in Paul's culture, this is beautiful. When people publicly repented in Paul's culture, they didn't type it on Facebook. They didn't have Facebook. And so what they end up doing is they would sometimes put a hot pan on their heads and they would fill it with, you can guess, burning coals as a display of their repentance. So what Paul is saying is not love them in like a dark way, bro. He's saying, if you return evil with love, God will use that as a way of filling that hot pan with hot coals to help them repent and turn to God. Isn't that cool? And by the way, this is why Paul says in verse 21, which is how he ends this chapter, by doing this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And like, who doesn't want to do that? Overcome evil with good. Push back the darkness in the world, which sounds like such a lofty goal. Like where do you, where do you, where in the world do you even start? Overcome, overcome evil with with good. What man? It sounds lofty, but Paul's strategy is really pretty simple. It's two things: you overcome evil with good by number one, not retaliating, and number two, feeding your enemies. That's it. Number one. Don't retaliate. Number two, feed your enemies. That's your whole plan for living peaceably in a fallen world. That's your whole plan for living peaceably in a difficult church situation. And this is a bulletproof strategy for laboring for peace among your enemies. And so every time somebody says something that wounds you, number one, don't retaliate. And number two, feed them. Anytime somebody slanders you or gossips you or disagrees with you, number one, don't retaliate. And number two, feed them. Whenever somebody does evil to you, number one, don't retaliate. Number two, feed them, which is super simple, but here's where we go wrong. Rather than actually obeying Jesus, what we end up doing is the opposite. We think that the way to respond to evil in the world or the way to respond to somebody wounding us is to like build wrecking balls. And so rather than serving and loving our enemies, we just try to perfect our argument. And then we like argue, we have these imaginary arguments in our head so that the next time you argue with them, you can slay them, bro. Like you can grill them, man, and you can win that argument. And what we end up doing is we end up retaliating gossip with gossip, slander with slander, evil with evil. But in the kingdom of God, and I want to hear you, I want you to hear this. This is so important. In the kingdom of God, God does not desire for walls to come down with wrecking balls. In the kingdom of God, most walls come down with meatballs. And good meals, yo, and forks, and spoons, and breaking out the good wine for the people that wounded you, and getting out the good steaks, and cooking a medium rare. That's the way in the kingdom of God. Oh, some medium rare, bros. What up? Come grill in my place, bro. I'll get you some of that medium rare. We'll hit up some fairway. Not that you're my enemy. You should. <laughs> <laughs> You should also feed your friends, by the way. That's also a really, really good idea. Um, but this is like the way that God wants, wants love to overcome evil. This is the way that revival happens. That's like revival. You want revival in this church? I know you want revival in this church. It's not going to happen if you rent a tent. 
Revival happens one meal at a time. Like if everybody in this room just committed their living room, their dinner table, and just committed to getting Cedar Rapids in there and serving people, I guarantee you next Sunday this church would be different. One meal at a time is how revival works. And it sounds so simple. Like there's a, there's a cynic inside of you that's like, okay, bro, but number one, don't retaliate. Number two, feed your enemies. Does it really work? Yeah? Does this strategy really work? And to that, I would always tell you, it worked with you. That's why you're here this morning. That's the essence of the gospel. It literally worked with you. When you were enemies with God, God did not retaliate and God fed you. When you were enemies with God, you heaped sin upon sin on Jesus' shoulders and he didn't retaliate. When you were enemies with God, you heaped wrong upon wrong on Jesus' shoulders, and he did not retaliate. When you were enemies with God, you heaped all of these things on Jesus' shoulders, and the man, Jesus Christ, kept coming after you. He pursued you, and not only did he pursue you, he pursued you to the uttermost. That man got beat like no other man's ever gotten beaten for you. He got crucified for you. And after it's all said and done, takes away your sins, provides his righteousness for you, he pulls up a seat at the table for you. He hunts you down and he invites you to his house. I mean, you want to look at the gospel, man? The gospel is the good news that Jesus didn't break out the cheap wine for you. Jesus breaks out the good wine for his enemies, his blood that satisfies our souls, covers us in righteousness and makes us members of his household. And so now the task in light of Romans 12 and in light of the gospel is very simple. Now it's your turn. It's your turn to love people. It's your turn to love people in this church. Even the enemies, especially the enemies. Read your Bible. It's your turn to love and to love radically. Because I'm, I'm telling you, I'm over, I'm over in Des Moines right now, and I'm just telling you that Iowa is watching you right now. Cedar Rapids is watching. Cedar Rapids is watching you closely right now to see how you respond to all of this. These nine months have been savage on you, and the city is watching you closely. They know that you treasure Jesus when things go well, they want to know, does this church treasure Jesus when things get hard? And so they're watching you. And right now, you have an opportunity. In the midst of this season, you can show your city. You can show your neighbors. You can show your kids that joy in Jesus is possible no matter what that striving for peace so that Jesus might be exalted in this church is possible not just when things are easy. So I've got three pieces of advice, and then I'm out of your way, okay? I've got three pieces of advice, three notes to help you fight for Christ-centered unity, even in the midst of a season ripe for division, so that you can show the world and show the city and show your family that joy in Jesus is possible even when things are tough. Three pieces of advice, then I'm done. Three strategies, three points. Here they are. Number one, look outside the mason jar. Number two, pray that you don't hear a knock at the door. And number three, don't wait until you turn three years old. Those three lines mean virtually nothing to you, so let's take them one at a time. Deal? First, look outside the mason jar. Um, if you remember the story at the beginning of the sermon, what happens when you put 100 fire ants and 100 black ants into a mason jar? Nothing. What happens when you shake it? They turn against one another. They start biting and devouring one another. And it's because the ants can't see outside of the mason jar. So the ants, rather than seeing the person shaking the mason jar as the adversary, they see other ants as the adversary. And the good news of the gospel is that you're not an ant. God has saved you and given you the Holy Spirit 
then you have the ability to look outside of the mason jar when things get shaken up in here. You have the spiritual sight, the spiritual worldview to pan outside of the person in front of you and look outside of the mason jar. And when you look outside the mason jar, you no longer see your brothers and sisters as your adversaries because they're not the ones shaking the mason jar. Who shook the mason jar? Not your brother, not your sister, not your pastors, not your deacons, not the other church members. Not the person who disagrees with you. Not the other person. There's a biblical answer to this question. Who shook the mason jar? Biblically, the answer is simple. Satan. Satan shakes the mason jar. It's what Satan does. He's the, the adversary. He goes around shaking mason jars in difficult times and seasons, causing conflict and disagreement and different opinions where they turn against one another and Satan just laughs his butt off while Christians turn against one another and bite and devour one another rather than engaging in spiritual warfare against Satan. Lots of Western churches operate in a way that makes Satan giggle. But if you've been given the Holy Spirit, then you've been given the ability to look outside of the mason jar and recognize the true source of evil in every conflict or division. And I want, you, I want you to try this. Don't take my word for it. The next time you're on the receiving end of evil, try this. Look past the person and look outside the mason jar. The next time somebody wounds you or disagrees with you, look outside the mason jar. Because when you're able to do that, that gives you the vantage point necessary to not retaliate. And that gives you the power to respond to evil with love. Which brings me to my second point. First, look outside the mason jar. Second, pray that you don't hear a knock at the door. This is an important point because Romans 12 is not just about not retaliating. Not retaliating, uh, not retaliating might be good enough for the world. Not retaliating might be good enough for Buddhism. But for the God of the Bible, Jesus demands more than you just not retaliating. Instead of not just retaliating, God requires something more radical, that you return evil with love. And so my exhortation to you this morning is that you do not tire of loving one another, that you trample the gates of hell with works of love, that you do not tire of encouraging one another, that you do not tire of praying for one another, that you do not tire of offering prophetic words to one another, that you do not tire of writing encouraging letters to one another, that you do not tire of giving the gifts of the Spirit to one another, that you do not tire of offering generosity to one another, that you do not tire of feeding your enemies, because if we're not vigilant about maintaining love, if a church is not vigilant about maintaining love in any season, let alone the one that we're in right now, if a church is not vigilant, though, and a church allows itself to just slide on love, and if a church just allows itself to get a little lazy on love, then you might hear a knock at the door. Well, you guys got, what do you got? You guys have the gate thing, right? Okay, you might hear a knock at the gate. And who would be knocking? This is Revelation chapter 2. John says, this is Jesus speaking, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are patiently, I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I mean, wouldn't you love to have Jesus say that about you? About your church? Just, you guys are crushing it with truth. But I have this against you. 
you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Just so we're clear, what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus is, you guys are crushing it with truth. You tested apostles and you found them false. Great job with doctrine. You guys are crushing it with your sermons. Good job being a conservative church. But you lost something. And what you lost is not secondary. And what you lost is not tertiary. You lost the love that you had at first. Your love for God and your love for one another. And if you don't repent, then I will take away your lampstand. And so I want us, I want you as a part of a local church to remain vigilant in maintaining your love for one another and your love for God. Because if you don't, you might hear a knock at that gate. And the person knocking at the gate is Jesus. And if you're not vigilant, with your love for one another, Jesus has no problem walking into this building and turning the lights off. Removing the lampstand. Taking the fire away. Taking the spirit away. Putting a clothes sign on that gate right there. So remain vigilant about love. Be devoted to radical expressions of love, especially in this season for Redeemer Church. You must love one another deeply and radically across all borders of disagreement and division, whatever those borders are. I'm telling you guys, this can be a strong church. This can be a very strong church, but not without love. So first, look outside the mason jar. See the source of evil. Second, Pray that you don't hear a knock at that gate. Remain vigilant in your love for, for, for one another. And the third thing I want to tell you is, don't wait until you're three years old to grow. I love my two-year-old daughter. I think I've made that clear. She's just the most competitive person in the world. The other day, we were racing each other on scooters, and she beat me. She turned around, popped her hip out, and said, Daddy, why is it that I always beat you? And I was like, not now. And she said to me, she literally said this. She was, like, she was like, it's because Jesus is on my team and Jesus isn't on your team. I was like, Della, I'm a pastor, okay? <laughs> Easy with that nonsense. And so there she was in the middle of conversation saying, Daddy, when I turn three, I'm going to be so big. When I turn three, I'm going to be bigger than daddy. And the problem with that type of view of growth is not just that it's erroneous, but that view of growth is actually detrimental to the type of work that actually makes growth possible because it makes my daughter wait for some magical mystic moment in the future rather than just eating the meal that we put in front of her on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's my encouragement to you. My encouragement is to remember that growth doesn't happen magically. It happens one meal at a time. And so if you're waiting for some future season to grow in Christ-likeness and joy, you're missing out on Jesus today. God is the God of today. He's with you today. He's put a meal in front of you today. Dig in and then go and do likewise. You can grow in this season. You can grow in your joy in this season. You can grow in your Christ-likeness this season, but it will only happen one meal at a time, one meal day by day, because God has designed this current season for you to learn how to fight for joy with people who disagree with you. God has designed this season for you to learn how to actually feed your enemies because maybe you've got that text memorized and you've never practiced it for the 20 years you've been a Christian. And God has designed this because he loves you as an opportunity to eat with those who disagree with you and to eat with those who fracture and to eat with those who find themselves on a certain team that's different than your team. God has designed this season for your growth and for your Christ-likeness so I'm telling you guys, fire up the grill. Break out the good bottle of wine. Open the doors of your house. Clean the dishes. 
Get the table ready and get this church inside your house. Feed your enemies. Not a metaphor. Feed them, just like Christ has fed you. Um, yeah, Redeemer Church, God loves you so much. You are covered in the righteousness of Jesus, and God sings over you, and he delights in you, and God is eager to see you make the most out of this opportunity. In this season, not the next one, in this season, show Cedar Rapids that joy in Jesus is possible no matter what. Show your kids that joy in Jesus is possible no matter what. Show your enemies that joy in Jesus is possible no matter what. And do it one meal at a time. Heavenly Father, It's just such a delight to be back in the church that loved me so well, served me so well, supported me and my family, and had the faith in church planting necessary to send us out to go plant in Des Moines. And so my prayer is twofold. First, I pray that this church knows that there is a church in Des Moines who is just utterly in love with them that we pray for them, that we desire to see them continue to plant more churches, and that we desire Redeemer Church to be the city's most joyful church. We desire for Redeemer Church to be the city's most joyful people in Cedar Rapids. We are rooting for them, and we are cheering for them. But the second part of my prayer is far more important, which is that Jesus feels the same way about Redeemer Church, that he loves this church, sings over this church and has designed this season for the sake of a stronger church, not a weaker church. So my prayer is that we learn to love our enemies across whatever divisions we might be facing or not. My prayer is that we, it's been shaken up. My prayer is that we look outside the mason jar to the true source of evil, and then we make war where war is happening. Not against our brothers, not against our sisters, not against other church members, but against the powers and principalities that Jesus has shamed on the cross. So Lord, make this church the city's most joyful church and make these people the city's most joyful people. It's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray and it's in the power that he has that I am confident that you'll do this. All God's people said, Amen.